This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Awesome. Well, happy 4th of July. I hope you guys had a great celebration yesterday. Um, my name is Will Vakurvich. I'm one of the pastoral residents here at Redemption Tempe. We only have one announcement today, and that is it's the first Sunday of the month, so we do our M25 offering. Um, we bring in food items this month. It was canned soup. So hopefully you guys remember that. If not, there are close grocery stores that you can run to right after the service and bring them back. Drop your soup off in the cans um, in the foyer. And if, if you did forget and you feel like the grocery store is too far away, it's all right. Because next month, we're going to collect something also. So just remember next month, okay? All right. There you go. You guys are with me. So uh, we are uh, walking through the book of Mark. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you have your Bibles, it's, we're going to start in verse 22. If not, then go ahead and slip your hand up, and one of the ushers will get a Bible to you. If you don't have a Bible, then this is our gift to you to keep. We believe that everyone should have the written Word of God. If you do, then on your way out, you can go ahead and drop it off in the back. So like I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And, and just so you guys know where we're going, uh, we're going to cover quite a bit of scripture this morning. We're going to look at a, a miracle. Uh, we're going to look at a, a great moment of declaration and victory. And then we're going to look at a really stern rebuke. Okay, so we're going to cover three things. And this passage that we're looking at today is really a turning point in the book of Mark. Um, if you've been with us, then maybe you remember, or if not, let's review real quick. Jesus has burst onto the scene. And Mark's writing style is quick. It's action. It's fast-paced. Jesus did this. He healed these people. He went on to the next town, did that, did the other. It's, it's one thing after another, and everything is victorious. Everything has um, hope and optimism infused within it, right? There's the paralytic that's lowered down on the mat, and Jesus heals him and says he's forgiven of sins, and it's great. There's uh, the girl who was sick and then she died and Jesus brought her back to life and her family celebrates and it's positive and it's happy. There's the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and she had faith that if she could just touch the edge of Jesus' robe, she would be healed and she was. She was restored back into community. We see these wonderful events and we, we're starting to get a glimpse of who Jesus is and, and what he's about while he's here on earth. He's about restoring God's kingdom, right? This sense that we all have of things are not the way that they should be, he's about making that right. And we see it in one victorious story after another after another. Jesus is like, you know, kicking butt here. And this is a really good thing. But in this passage this morning, the tone's going to change a bit. See, Jesus didn't just come to be like this cool guy who heals things, right? He, he came with a purpose. He had a larger mission in mind than just restoring a hand that was crippled. And so he's going to address that. He's going to clarify his mission for us. He's going to let us know what it's like to see a bit more clearly the kingdom of God. So let's dive in. You guys ready? 
All right, kind of. Four of you are. That's good enough. (laughs) Here we go, chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, that's Jesus, a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. He sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So Jesus enters a town. And just like what has been happening throughout the book of Mark, the people hear that Jesus is coming. They know Jesus' reputation. He heals people. He fixes things. And they have a fellow member of their village who's blind. So they bring the blind guy to Jesus, ask him that Jesus would touch this blind man, and Jesus does. And his sight uh, starts to get restored. Jesus asks him, do you see anything? And he says, well, yeah. I see people walking around, but they look like trees. So Jesus touches them again, and now he can see clearly. Many commentators believe that Mark uses this story to set up what will follow. So for us, as we um, get to know who Jesus is, we have an idea of what the kingdom of God is like. But the more time we spend with Jesus... The more interactions, the more time Jesus touches us, we begin to see more clearly. We begin to get a clearer understanding of what the kingdom of God is, why Jesus came, and what he would have us to do with our lives. So Mark uses this story to illustrate this point, right? Here's a guy, he can't see anything. He meets Jesus, he can kind of see things, but it's still not clearly. And the more time he spends with Jesus, Jesus continues to touch him, and now he can see clearly. And this is what we're going to see. This is a preview of what's to come. So the story moves on. And we see Jesus with his disciples. And they're walking. We can pick the story up in verse 27. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? He's beginning to set the stage. What is your vision for the kingdom of God? What is this kingdom of God like? Why do you think I came, but not your opinion, other people's opinion? And so the disciples respond. They say, well, Jesus, some people say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. A few weeks ago, that's what Herod said. He thought that um, Jesus was John the Baptist raised back from the dead. Other people say, no, 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 no. John the Baptist is dead. That doesn't make any sense. He's Elijah, who's come back to prepare the way for the Messiah. Other people say, no, that doesn't quite fit. Jesus must be one of the prophets. He must be somebody who speaks for God. But the crowds were wrong. The crowds didn't quite get it right. The crowds all thought that Jesus was somebody who was preparing the way for the Messiah, for the promised one. You see, the nation of Israel had been distant from God for a long time. Their their sin and their rebellion had distorted their relationship with God. And so they were waiting for a redeemer. They were waiting for somebody who would restore them religiously, 
They were waiting for somebody who would restore them nationally. They were waiting for somebody who would restore them politically. And so they looked at Jesus, and they figured, well, he's something, but that's not what we want. We want a Savior who will come and restore the nation of Israel to the nation of Israel and kick Rome out of there. We're tired of the empire making rules and laws that run contrary to how we feel we should live. We want national redemption. We don't want personal redemption. Some people said, we want a king to come in and and restore the wealth and the riches and the, the luxuries that we once had under King David. We want comfort. We want our Messiah to deliver us into a land of comfort and peace and tranquility and no hard work and no suffering. And they look at Jesus and he's clearly not that. Other people only wanted this religious idea, right? This really, really smart, scholarly guy who could, you know, like write cool blog posts about interesting things that people would find clever and witty. And that wasn't Jesus either. So when they looked at Jesus, they knew he was something. But they didn't get that he was the Messiah. They didn't get that he was the Christ. They didn't get the one that he was... um, that he was the one who was prophesied of from long ago, from generations ago, that would come and restore God's people back into God's family. They missed it. And so Jesus asks another question here, right? Because it's not enough for us to know what other people say about Jesus. It's not enough for us to say, well, historically our nation has been a Christian or a God-fearing nation, and so that's good enough. It's not enough for us to say, well, my family tradition is Christian enough, so that's good enough. Those things aren't good enough. Jesus says, first, who do people say that I am? But more precisely, more accurately, who do you say that I am? What do you think my teachings mean? What do you think is an appropriate response to me? And in Mark's fast-paced writing style, Peter says, you're the Christ, which is an easy sentence, right? But that's a sentence that's so filled with meaning. There's so much in those words. You are the Christ. You are the promised one, right? These guys knew their Jewish history. They knew all the way back from the creation of everything, when God created the world and and animals and people and the garden, and he said it's very good and things were the way that they should be, and then sin entered, God made a promise to his people. He said this enemy will be overcome. There will be one who will come and save. And throughout all of the scriptures, that's what people are talking about. That's what the prophets are prophesying. That's what the stories are alluding to, that there will be one who will come and who will save this nation of Israel, who will save God's people. And Peter says, you're that guy. This is a big deal. This is what generation after generation after generation has been waiting for. Now is the time. They're starting to get it. The nation will be restored The religious system will be righted once again. Their interactions with God will be open and healthy and loving. There won't be these years and years and decades and decades of silence from God. 
God will once again re-enter into their relationship with them. This sense of things are not the way that they should be will be eliminated. The sense of what's right will be restored. Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the one. You are God's chosen ambassador to tell us what he is like, what his love is like, what living in his family is like. This is big news. This is a turning point. This is a culmination of years and years and years of waiting and longing and asking, how long, O Lord? This is why the Psalms were written and sung and prayed in times of lament. This is why the prophets spoke about a better way that things should be, about how we should be treating others. All of this has culminated in Jesus. Peter gets it. Peter gets that this changes everything. The one that we've waited for is here. Our team's going to win. Our presidential candidate, he's the one. He's the one that will fix our nation. He's going to restore it back to the good old days, whenever those were. There's hope. There's excitement. There's anticipation in this. Finally, our shoulders that are weary from bearing the burdens of the way things are not supposed to be will feel some restoration. We'll feel some rest. As a nation, we can stop striving. Peter gets it. Now is the time. Now is the time. And Jesus says he's right. It's like a candidate who announces, yeah, you guys have asked for me to run for president. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And my campaign will win. It will be successful. But then he does something really weird that we would not expect from a candidate. Follow with me. He says this. We'll pick up in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. No presidential candidate says, look, you're going to be on the campaign trail with me. We're going to go do the commercials. We're going to do the signs. We're going to do the flyers. Maybe somebody will make a cool shirt that people will like to buy. And on the eve of election night, I'm going to drop out of the race. Nobody would follow that person. Nobody would put their hope in him. And so I think for us, it's easy to look at Peter and like, Peter, you knucklehead. You just realized that Jesus is the Christ, and what Peter is about to do is totally tell Jesus that he's wrong, because this is not what we would expect from a Messiah. This is not how we would expect a revolutionary to respond. The conquering liberator should be a conquering liberator, not somebody who suffers. The disciples have to be shaking their heads here, right? This is Jesus, the Son of God, and the religious leaders are going to kill him? Not like, you know, the Romans are are the ones, you know, the bad guys, whoever we decide to vilify, they're the ones. No, the, the religious elite. The religious leaders of the nation, they have to be scratching their heads. Jesus, what? What are you talking about? And so Peter speaks up again. Um, He he took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, you, you kind of get this idea that I'm the Christ, that I'm the Messiah, but you're not thinking about it as God thinks about it. You're thinking about it like man thinks about it. So when Jesus talks about the suffering that must come, Peter doesn't get it. Jesus uses strong language here, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's as bad as it gets. (laughs) Jesus uses that strong language on purpose because he remembers. Jesus remembers at the beginning of his ministry when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was fasting, and he was praying, and Satan came to tempt him. And and he tempted him in three ways. The first thing Satan said is, look, Jesus, you're fasting, you're hungry. You have power, which is true. Why don't you look at these stones and turn them into bread? Jesus could have done that. And I doubt that the temptation was in like, well, I can make bread and that will satisfy my hunger right now. I wonder if the temptation wasn't in Jesus knowing that throughout centuries, his people would be starving. They would hunger. And he could circumvent this mission of God by just just making bread out of the stones. He could feed those starving orphans so that you wouldn't have to watch those commercials on TV. Jesus could have done that. It would have been good. Jesus tells us, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. I was hungry and you fed me. And Satan says, well, do it. Do it my way. Address the hunger because that's important, which it is. Jesus says, man doesn't live off of bread alone. That is an issue and it is a very important issue, but it is not the issue. So Satan changes his strategies, and he says, Jesus, why don't you go to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle, the the highest point of the temple, and throw yourself off? And everyone will see that God will rescue you, and they'll be amazed in the middle of the religious establishment. Why don't you rise to the heights? Why don't you impress everyone with your spirituality? Why don't you become the coolest and most quoted theologian? Because it's important how we think about God. It's important what we know about God. It shapes how we view the world. But God didn't send his son only for theology. He sent his son for transformation. Theology is important. It's a big issue. But it's not the issue. Well, so then Satan says, okay, Jesus, look. I'm going to show you every kingdom ever. Every person all of the glory, I can give this to you, which is important. Paul tells us in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because our God is sovereign. He reigns. It's important for us to know that and have hope in that and have trust in that, but that's not the way. That's not the way that God intended. That's not the mission for which God sent his son. All of these issues are important. It's important for us to take care of one another. It's important for us to think rightly about who God is. 
It's important for us to know that God is sovereign. But the heart of the issue is sin. And sin requires sacrifice. Sin requires atonement or covering for sin. It requires somebody to pay the price. That's why Jesus said he must suffer. Jesus could have taken the easy way out, but would not have dealt with the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is sin. And he knew what he would have to endure. And so that's why when Peter says, look, Jesus, I need to rebuke you right now because you are the Christ. You're the winner. You don't need to go through the suffering. You don't need to die. It's the same lie that Satan told him in the wilderness. So he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. The things of God understand that sin is the heart of the issue, and that's why Jesus came. And it's ugly, and it's messy, and it's dirty, and we run away from all of those things. But Jesus says embrace it. He's going to show us how to embrace it. Pick up with me in verse 34. Mark says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying, you get that I'm the Messiah. You get that I'm the Christ. This is what it looks like. It looks like death. It looks like unjust suffering. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like humiliating service. He says, you take up your cross and you follow me. He's not saying you take up your cross like we use it as fashion. Or, or you take up your cross like we use it as a political statement. Or, or this really clean and sanitized version of a cross that we have in our minds. He's saying, you take up an instrument of death. An instrument of execution. An instrument of torture. You take up something that you all flee from, that we flee from. This pain, this discomfort. Think about the stigma. Think about what... Um, ex-felons have to endure, right? It makes it difficult to find a job. It makes it difficult to find a house. We're scared of these people because they have lived in ways that are so different from what society says is okay. Now, they're labeled. Jesus says, identify yourself with that. Live your life in such a way that people are thinking twice if they want you to be their neighbors. Are we willing to give that up? Live your life in such a way that the world notices you're different. You've aligned yourself with my kingdom, not with the world. Not with what the world says is okay and accurate. Not with what the world says, how we should view other people, but you have aligned yourself with what God says is right. There should be a stigma upon us. This is radical news. This is not easy. 
This is not comfortable in a world of like, how many likes and reposts can we get? (laughs) But this is what Jesus says. He says, take up your cross. The cross is an instrument of death. And if we're following Jesus, he says, we must die to ourselves. We must put his priorities over ours. His desires over ours. We must value and esteem what the Father says is good and right over what we think is good and right or what we wish was good and right. It's an instrument of death. Our life is no longer our own like it ever was, right? The cross is a symbol of finality. There's decisiveness in it. There's no back and forth with the cross. Once you're nailed to a cross, you are nailed to a cross. There's no coming down until you die. There's no parole. There's no probation. There's no time off to do something different because it's a holiday weekend and we're going to celebrate and we know what we should be doing, but, you know, it's it's all right. It's 4th of July, right? The cross is decisive. It doesn't change when you're with coworkers or family members or friends. There's a clear statement with the cross. One of my favorite movies from childhood is The Karate Kid. Really, no one else? <laughs> okay. okay, let me clarify for you. Not the Karate Kid with Will Smith's son, but like the old Karate Kid. Yeah, yeah somebody's like, yeah, all right, thank you, thank you. So this is what Mr. Miyagi says, the great theologian. He says, if you walk on one side of the road, you're good. If you walk on the other side of the road, you're good. If you walk in the middle of the road, sooner or later, you get squished like a grape. So he tells Daniel, either you do karate or you don't do karate. If you do karate so-so, you get squished like a grape. There's no so-so cross. There's no so-so relationship with Jesus. There's no so-so entrance into God's family, into this kingdom that Jesus is exemplifying. You do it or you don't. These are not popular words in our society, but they're true. The cross is an instrument of death. We have to die to self. The cross is a symbol of finality. You need to make a choice. And the cross is a public declaration Jesus didn't carry the cross through secret back alleys and tunnel ways. He carried it through streets, through crowds. People were crucified on main passageways so that many travelers and traders could see them because the government, the empire, wanted to make a statement. If you live in opposition to the empire, this is what will happen. Know it. God's saying the same thing. If you're a part of my kingdom, your life should be a public display for everyone to see of how good and true and forgiving and restful entrance into the Father's family is. It should be clear by our actions. Our faith cannot be lived out in our houses, in bedrooms, early in the morning when we read a few verses and then it doesn't touch the rest of our lives. 
being a member of God's family means everything has changed. That's why week after week we say all of life is all for Jesus. Jesus says if you're going to follow me, you take up your cross. You become a public spectacle. People walking by you should see what the kingdom of God is like. He's clarifying our vision, right? Remember the guy in the beginning that he healed? He's clarifying our vision of what it's like to live in this kingdom of God. It's a kingdom of sacrifice. Guys, the cross is intentional. It was designed with a purpose. There's a reason. And as we consider taking up our cross, I'm sure that evokes many different kinds of images for everyone in here. And some of those are really positive, and some of those are really um, weird, right? My wife and I like to keep up with news and current events and stuff, and sometimes we'll see these things where it's like, oh, this Christian said, and it's like, oh, no. Are we, come on, you know we're not the only ones, right? We see those things where these people are doing whatever weirdo thing in the name of God, and it's like, oh, I don't know about that. The cross is intentional. We're not called to be weirdos to be weirdos. We're not called to be different just to be different. We're called to take up our cross for a reason, to live like Jesus lived, not to be flamboyant, not to make a headline, but to make a difference. To show people what God is like. And we have to think through these things, right? Peter says that we should always be prepared to give a a defense for the reason of our hope, for anyone who asks, but to do so respectfully and winsomely. Not just called to be protesting things that don't need to be protested. We're not just called to be Weird people wearing weird t-shirts that make some kind of statement. We're called to intentionally love our neighbors, intentionally love our community, intentionally serve one another so that they may see the Son of God, understand the kingdom of God, and enter into God's family. We're called to do this on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not a Sunday morning thing. It's not a Christmas and Easter thing. You guys got that covered. You're on like, you're here at the least attended weekend, right? Right after 4th of July. You got that one down. Jesus calls us to a radical lifestyle where everything changes because all of life is all for Jesus. Let's, uh, I, I have a quote here by David Guzik. And he describes it this way. He says, most people think of following Jesus as conforming to the establishment. Actually, Jesus calls us to rebel against the established order of this world. We're called to rebel against the tyranny of the flesh, against the fear and conformity of the world, against the traditions of man. Jesus encourages a slave rebellion where the slaves of sin, Satan, and this world rebel against their masters. This is a life of action. This is not a life of passivity. This is a life where we deny ourselves for the good of the other because of the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. This is a life lived in response. This is a life of community, right? We are called to carry our crosses. 
Now, we do that individually, but we also do that collectively with one voice, moving into our neighborhoods and our communities, declaring how great the love of God is. This is hard work, but it's work that we do together. And so Jesus says, you called me the Christ. Good job. Let me clarify what that means. And now you have to make a choice. We have to respond to this. Jesus says, pick up your cross. There's no like so-so. Either you pick it up or you don't. Do you pick it up with the way that you speak and interact with other people or you don't? You pick it up with the way that you decide to spend your time and your money or you don't. You pick it up by what you invest in, by what you esteem, by what you hold in high regard or you don't. We can't fool ourselves here. Remember Mr. Miyagi. We have to ask ourselves, can we carry this cross? Can we live this life of love and sacrifice and service for others? It's a weighty message, but there's good news in it. Because the answer is we can't. (laughs) None of us can. If we could have, Jesus wouldn't have come. He came. He felt the weight of the brokenness. He felt the burden of the crosses that we all carry. He knew well our dysfunction, our incapabilities. He bore those on his shoulders when he literally took up his cross. He established a set of footprints to follow in. Not like the cheesy poem in grandma's bathroom, right? But a way of life. A way of rebellion that makes sense. A way of rebellion that dies to self. A way of rebellion that's final and decisive. A way of rebellion that's a public spectacle. So that people will see the things that we choose to do and participate in and have a clear picture of the kingdom of God. You see, it brings us back to the story of the healing. The blind man saw people, but they looked like trees. They looked like objects. And a lot of times, that's how we treat people. An object, an inconvenience, a method to promote myself, someone to scapegoat, someone to blame, someone to vilify, someone to try to get close to so that I can make myself better. Jesus says, no. Let me rub a little spittle in there so you can see clearly that is a person, an image bearer of God just like you, one that I bore the cross for. And so now you respond. You respond because that's what Jesus did. And if we're saying we're following him, then we're following him decisively. We respond with a life of service, with a life of sacrifice, with a life where we realize we need to shoulder our own crosses so that we can be put on public display so that people can see how great the Father's love is for us. He clarifies our vision so that we understand the mission that he was sent on, that he calls us to. If you would come after me, we know where Jesus went. He tells us he's going to the cross. He says he told them plainly that he would be rejected, he would die, and on the third day he would rise again. That's where he's going. And he asks, are you with me? Are you coming with me? 
Are you picking up your cross because the people that you see are not objects, they are fellow image bearers made in God's likeness, crafted with his care and love. And in the garden, he came close to us and he breathed life into us because he values us. He sent his son to die for us. Will you follow him on this mission? This is a turning point in the book. And as we're confronted with this message, it has to be a turning point in our lives. What will we do? How do we respond to this? One side of the road or the other? Will you pick up your cross or not? The good news is we have a path to follow. And it's the way of Jesus. It's the way that he's calling us to. And it's up to us to respond. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that your spirit fills us when we enter into your family and empowers us and motivates us to live for you. We thank you that you use us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness. We thank you that there's no way we can carry our cross and that you did Thank you that you call us to the same and that you empower us to the same. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.